Hey, I thought I saw the tags. Are they running around here? Yes. How are you guys doing? Good to have you back. Fantastic. Old longtime members are living in Oregon now, right? That's the same. It's all. It's, it's not. <laughs> it's not California. No, I'm just kidding. Great to have you guys back. Well, good morning, everyone. And um, you're like, now I know why people leave this church. That's what they get treated. Um, <laughs> This morning, we are ending our short series entitled, Who Do Christians Think They Are? And then um, we're going to go back into our study of the book of Revelation, and we're going to finish up Revelation. Uh, we're going to be in that book to the rest of the year, so that's going to be the, the, our preaching diet for the rest of the year. Uh, we will have one other sermon thrown in there for Reformation Sunday. So for the past three Reformation Sundays, which is, August, which is October 31st, I've been doing a series called So Great a Salvation, working through the golden road of redemption in Romans chapter 8. So... At one sermon a year, it's going to take, that's like my longest running sermon. It's going to be about seven-year sermon series. We're in year four of that. And so, but other than that, we're going to be in the book of Revelation for the remainder of the year. I think you're really going to appreciate it. I have really enjoyed this sermon series that we've been working through together on, on, on Christian identity, particularly being the church. And what I've really enjoyed is some of the interactions I've had with some of you. Uh, I, I know this has been a, a challenging sermon in a series in some ways, but but. I love how many of you have been wrestling with the text, and really, as you know by now, this is a series that's on the church, but more to the point, the, the role of the church in the life of the Christian. And I can't tell you, after every service, uh, at least one or two of you will come up, and, and you're, I can see in your mind, you're thinking, you're like, wait a minute, so baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's the initiatory rite of the church and the ongoing rite. I've never been baptized, and that probably means I should probably get baptized. And I love how you guys are wrestling with this doctrine, the doctrine of the church, known as ecclesiology, right? comes from two Greek words. And, and that's because this is, like I said, a, a forgotten doctrine within the church, and it's really to our detriment in a lot of ways. I loved at our membership class we had about two weeks ago during one of the breaks, I was in the bathroom, one of the guys came in and says, I'm really loving this class, but my head is hurting, right? Because we are talking about things in ways that they, they've never really thought about, even though they might have been Christians for many years. And so to that end, I, I want to give away a couple of books this morning to continue to encourage you guys who are thinking about uh, all that we've been talking about this series, about the, the church as an embassy and how we work together and the keys of the kingdom. So if you'd like this book, here's the only thing I ask, that you actually read it. Don't, don't take it because the blue goes with your couch in your living room and you want to put it on the coffee table. But if you'd like to get one of these books, just raise your hand. I want to give it to somebody who's actually going to read it. Awesome, awesome. Let's see. This we got just two hands over here. There's a hand over there. So I'm going to. It's church membership. How the World Knows Who Represents Jesus. And I've actually quoted a little bit from it in this series, so I think you'll be really encouraged. So I want you guys to read this and then interact with me. I would love to have a I don't know if I've met you. Robert. Robert, you part of this church on a regular basis? Okay, I would love to interact with you after you read that, Robert. And same with you, Jerry, just to see how, how it's been helpful, how it's challenged you, made you think, right? That, that's what we want to be about. In one sense, what I'm trying to do in this series is to offer a middle ground between maybe an, an overly regimented, uh, legalistic, tradition-heavy view of the church on the one hand and, and an overly lax, individualistic, consumer-heavy view of the church on the other hand. I, I want us to have a category for the church that's neither, uh, if I can use metaphorical language, like a, a high, kind of uptight Victorian society where everything's just done this way, and if you don't conform, you're out. On the one hand, and, and maybe an American Wild West frontier mentality where it's a free-for-all on the other hand. 
Is the church, my argument is the church is neither one of those things, but something in between. And, and if some traditions have gone too far this direction, and, and I think there are some traditions that have done that in many ways well-intended, but it became this kind of tightly, overly regimented, behavioristic thing, I think other traditions, and we being part of the e kind of an evangelical movement, we've probably made the error too far on the other. And so some of the tension that's come up in this series is an argument that's being made implicitly and explicitly at points is that Christianity and, and, and the way we do our Christian lives and the church itself is not an entirely subjective thing. Now, at one level, you all get that, but what, what has caused some of the tension is we've actually been drilling down and saying the church is not about preferences or things you like or don't like, but an argument is being made that the church is actually something with an objective purpose and design and shape and structure, and if you are a Christian, you fit into that in a certain way that it's unlike just however you want it to be, that there's an actual oughtness to the church and your life as a Christian in that. In other words, this series has been kind of... Um, talking about the institutional aspect of what a church is. Now, if as Christians, if we do think about the church, it typically tends to be on the, or, what I call the organic thing, right? The fellowship we enjoy, the goods we receive from the church, coming together and doing those things that we enjoy about the church, the music we sing, all of that. But what I've been talking about is more the institutional. Like the church is an embassy that's authorizing who, who's recognized as a citizen or not. That's, that's the structure and organization. And that's been challenging. Look at it this way. Think of the, the organic and the institutional like flesh and bones, right? You, you need both. Both are important. The, the, the organic stuff is the pretty soft stuff on the outside that we all get to see, right? But without the bones, without the skeleton, it, it's just a blob on the ground. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to go anywhere. Likewise, I admit, looking at the skeleton can sometimes be scary, right? But that's when some of the tension we felt in this series is we've actually been thinking about, well, what, what structure does the church have? And how does that institutional aspect of it and our role in that help maintain the beautiful organic aspects of the church that we typically associate a church with? And so that's what this series has been kind of scratching against. And I think you've been feeling that. Some of you have been feeling that. Now, today is the last, day, last part in the series but I hope that this lays a foundation because at some point we'll come back to the church and talk about other aspects of the church. Now this morning, I want to talk about a little bit of how we got here and, and a bit of what we do institutionally that makes the organic thing continue to happen so beautifully. Right? It's, it's, again, it's not either or. It is an and also reality. And so the way we're going to do that this morning is three ways. Number one, what I want to do is summarize this series. I want to link the key points of how we got from the very first week to here, because if you've been here for five weeks and you've been listening, you can realize I'm actually making an argument. Every week I'm building on the argument to make the conclusion. So that's the first part of what we're going to look at this morning. The second is to actually show how our newly adopted church covenant that the membership of this church adopted back in our May 2021 business meeting is actually in a reflection of the very things I've been preaching through in this series. And then finally and third, how we as ambassadors and an embassy live together. So those are the three things we want to talk about this morning. And so we're going to be jumping around in Scripture. Eventually we're going to end up in 1 Corinthians 5, but we'll get to there in a little bit. So as I do this, as I walk through this, 
I want to show you the links of how we go from just individual Christian to Christian and the church to how do Christian and the church integrate or work with one another. So let's summarize this. So the first week we talked about, what we talked about was what we are not, right? And that to be a Christian, it's not just about doctrine and focusing on theology and all those things, as great as those things are. We also talked about it's not just about having a changed lifestyle, being kind of behavioristic and morals, you know, do this and don't do that. Or it's not about us trying to change the world, kind of bringing our Christian faith into the world. It's not that we're any one of these, but actually I made the case that a Christian's not any one of them. In fact, a Christian is all of them at the same time. Because the reality is, while we're not just about theology or behavioral change or changing the culture, what we are about is the glory of God as clearly seen in the work of Christ. And as a result of that, because we're about God's glory and his work in Christ, we will want to know him, right? We're going to want to know this work of Christ. We're going to want to know this character of God. That's doctrine, that's theology. And because of that, we're going to want to live like him. And so that's that piety where we're, gonna, we're actually going to make that change the way we live because as we realize we're studying and learning about a holy God, we're not that way and we're going to change our lives to submit to that and align myself to who God's character is. And as a result, we're going to want this world reclaimed for him because every inch of this creation is his and we want it to know him fully and truly. So we're not any one of those things. We're actually all of those things. That was the first week. The second week we made the case that principally how this is done, because there are personality tendencies, we tend to lean one way or the other, but how this balance is maintained is that we become God's people, his covenant community, his building, his body, his bride. As 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, we have become a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That happens the way Peter's talking. And by the way, if you didn't know this, Peter's not making this stuff up. He's pulling from Old Testament material, Old Testament language that was reserved for Israel, and he's applying it to the new people of God that included Jews and Gentiles as well. It doesn't happen because you or I merely became Christians, but because together as Christians we become the church. The ecclesia, the assembly, the called out ones. That's what church means, the gathered ones, the assembled ones, the ones called out to be his congregation. Something altogether different than just Christians hanging out together. So I began to make the distinction between Christians and a church. That was week two. Week three, I then talked about well, what it does mean. And, and as a foundation of that, I made the argument that Christianity is not, and this is totally counter to our current cultural understanding, Christianity is not you accepting Jesus into your heart. Rather, it is God through Christ accepting you into his family. And I said that subtle shift is significant because who's in the driver's seat now? It's not me. Who's doing the action? It's not me. The gospel is all about what God is doing. He is in the driver's seat. He, in his grace and his mercy, invited me because of what Christ has done that I could be in his family. I didn't decide, ah, you're good enough, Jesus. Why don't you come on in? No. He says, I've made you good enough in Christ. Come into the family. As a result of that reality, I also made the case that Christianity, while it's very personal, it's not private. 
For those of you who've lived in a large family, you know exactly what I mean, right? There's no privacy, and it bugs you, but there's a sense in which you kind of love that, always bumping into each other, always doing life together. And so while it is personal, it is not private, and that was really important to state because in our culture, we almost make an idol out of our autonomy, our individuality, our privacy. And as Christians, we live the open life, right? We are living lives that are transparent. And then so finally, after making those points, we got to week three. What then is a church? A church are Christians who are gathered around the word of God to study it and have it preached and proclaimed to them. They are the ones who, who administer the, the ordinances of the baptism and the Lord's Supper because those are visible signs of the gospel, of the covenant, baptism being the initiatory rite of someone becoming part of the people of God, and the Lord's Supper, a regular participation, a regular uh, ratification of the covenant that my life is not sustained by my own works or by myself, but actually the, the life and death of Christ. That's what we're saying when we take it every Lord's Supper service. Every time you take those elements, you're ratifying the covenant. Jesus said, this, is the blood of my, this, this cup is the blood of my, the new covenant. And so we are the people who guard those who come in and maintain those who stay within the church, caring for one another and watching over one another. That's what we do as a church. That's what we kind of moved into last week, that we together as this church are an embassy of the kingdom of God to this world. And in this embassy, we are all, every one of you, if you are a Christian, ambassadors to this world. We go out to this world proclaiming the same message to the world, caring for one another, and watching over one another to ensure that we're actually representing the one we were sent into the world to represent. Because our lives are not our own, but they are his. We represent him. We are the people, I said, who speak for Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian that's what it is to be the church. We are the ones who speak for Jesus. I made the case that if you are a Christian then, being part of a church, and I don't just mean you show up regularly, that you kind of dip in and dip out, but covenanting together, becoming a member, locking arms is not an option for you. The church is not, I, uh, I said, I don't think I said this, but as I thought about it, the church is not simply a good resource center for your Christian life. If you dip in when you have some needs and then you dip out when you're okay. I said that actually the church is the shape of your following Jesus. The church is the shape of your following Jesus. Why did I say that? Well, I said that because of this. What we learn as put together, this comes from that book. Lehman says, the church is the institution that Jesus created and authorized to pronounce the gospel of the kingdom, to affirm gospel professors, to oversee their discipleship, and to expose gospel imposters. Why is the church that? Because we are the people who represent Jesus. We are the people who speak on behalf of Jesus to the world. Now, that's the argument that was made all the way up to this morning, and I'm going to finish up the argument this morning, but what I do want to say is that all of these thoughts, in part, have led to the creation and then the adoption of our church covenant as a church membership. So now, look in your bulletins. Um, man, I thought I had one here. Hold on here. 
uh, I marked one up at home. One of, on, on the back of your bulletin, I'll just use this. So on the back of your bulletin, you'll see we actually printed the church covenant that we, crea- or we created as a church and then adopted as a church leadership. And the church covenant reflects a lot of what we're talking about. So let me just kind of run you through. We're not going to read the whole thing together, although we have done that at our membership meetings and things. But I just want hi- to highlight some things, and I want you to listen to, oh, this is, this is what you said two weeks ago. This is, in fact, there. So, for example, let's look at starting at line number two. Remembering that it's by God's mercy and grace that we experience our salvation. So, really, right out of the gate, right out of the gate, we are saying, we are remembering, this is God's initiative. We are recognizing that it wasn't us accepting Jesus, but it was God giving us his mercy and grace that we've received salvation from him. It is us who accepted, or it is God who accepted us in Christ. Look at line number eight. We will walk together in Christian love and care, faithfully watching over one another, encouraging and admonishing one another. So notice what it says. We're going to watch over each other in love and care, right? Not suspicion and mistrust. We're not doing any of that kind of thing. The reason we watch over each other is because we love each other and we want to care for each other. But what's the ultimate goal? I think this one's rooted in, in uh, Ephesians 1.7. The ultimate go- goal is for God's glory. You see at the very end of line number nine. And so display God's glory to the world. That's why we watch over one another. That's why we care for one another. Look at number, uh, line number 11. We will, gather le- we will gather regularly in Christian community and not forsake or neglect the primacy of the Lord's day in our lives. What's that saying? Well, it's saying what you're doing right now. We're just going to be together. And and we're going to be together regularly, weekly, if not more. And we're not going to forsake that. And according to Hebrews, as is the habit of some, let me ask you something. Do you know Christians who are not part of a church? You probably do. Friends, based on what I've said, not how I feel, not what you feel, based on what we looked at Scripture, is there such a thing as a lion without a pride? Is there a wolf without a pack? There can't be a Christian without a church. That's a heavy statement because I want that to sit. Because the author of Hebrews is dealing with this very dynamic, don't forsake the fellowship, as is the habit of some. Friends, I've been a Christian now for 35 years. That's longer than many of you have been alive. And as I think back on my Christian faith... I think about what are the things that have been the most helpful in living as a Christian. And there have been great, like, uh, camps, conferences, concerts, kind of one-off things that I've experienced that you all have, mountaintop experiences, all these great transformational things. And it's easy to say that 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 concert or that conference or that one weekend or that one individual was the key to my Christian growth. But the reality is it's not. As I look back on 35 years of my life, The thing that has been the most powerful in shaping me to be like Christ is is the very weekly rhythm and routine of being with people, the people of God. And here's the reality. That sounds so like not helpful at one point, right? And, And it certainly doesn't sound sexy. Because what most people want is spiritual Red Bull. All right, I'm good. I don't need anything. I can keep going for another day here. And what I'm saying is that doesn't do it. If you drink Red Bull or Monster drinks your whole life, what's going to happen? You're going to get cancer and you're going to die in a year, right? (laughs) 
And so we are looking for the Red Bull conference. I'm looking for the Red Bull podcast or this concert, something that give me a spiritual high. And what I'm saying is pretty, uh, because what I'm saying is, yeah, uh, eat your greens because the church is your broccoli. You're like, oh, thanks. <laughs> this is for 35 years on this. And you know what? I, this has been me. And I've got friends like, whoo, I got wings now. And they're all over the place. And I'm like, all right, whatever. I got my broccoli. But you know what? 35 years of that has probably been the most powerful thing that's given me spiritual strength in my life to get me through. Just broccoli. <laughs> right? Can you have Red Bull? Yes. Right? Can you have a monster drink? Yes. What's my point? Sometimes the most powerful things for us are the things we tend to ignore and seem so mundane. Just like eating your greens. Don't forsake the gathering. That's why that's in our covenant. Because we need the fellowship, the encouragement. Look at line 13. Um, we will intentionally disciple those in our care. Yes, we're going to be intentional about helping people understand who Jesus is. Line 16. We will laugh, we will celebrate one another's joys and bear one another's burdens. We're going to laugh with those who laugh. We're going to weep with those who weep. We're going to be encouraged when somebody gets a job, when I need one, but I'm going to celebrate that God's provision is happening in that person's life. We're, we're going to weep with those who are going through sorrow, even though, man, my life might be turning up roses because I want to have compassion on my brother and sister because life is full of joys and sorrows. And you may be in a season of joy and you may be in a season of sorrow now, but it isn't too long where you'll have a season of joy and you'll have a season of sorrow. And we go through it together. And you need a community for that. Look at line 17. We will strive to live holy lives, repenting of sin and denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. I love this one too. Why? Because, line 18, our lives are not our own, but have been ransomed by the life and death of the Son of God. Friends, nobody in this room is going to drift into godliness, right? It is not going to happen. You are not going to accidentally be like Jesus. Can I just say that to you? If you think just you're going to stumble into holiness, it's not going to happen. You have to be intentional. We like the word strive because it actually shows it's going to require effort. If any of you have just drifted into holiness, I'd like to know that, what, what beach you're swimming at, because that does not happen for me. We're going to strive to live holy lives, because everything about me, though sin has been eradicated, though that I've been forgiven of its power and its presence in my life and the penalty, I still struggle with it, and you do too. And we need a community to help us continue to grow. Look at line 20. Back to the covenant. We will partner together in this local church as we sustain its worship, ordinance, discipline, and doctrine. We're going to do this for the gospel's sake because, by the way, the church is the only institution on the planet that will do this. I totally like the environment. Don't get me wrong. But you know what? There's a lot of people who care about the planet. Nobody cares about the gospel. There's only one institution that cares about the gospel. It's the Lord's church. It's you and I. And so we do these things for the gospel's sake. And number 24, we will, if we move from this place as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. See, church membership does, it isn't just an affection for people who, um, uh, that you happen to like in the Christian life. 
It's a commitment to those Christians that God has physically placed around you. It's not just hanging out with other Christians you like that makes it a powerful witness to the world. In some cases, I love the fact that some of us have nothing in common. But we know Jesus, and because of that, we connect like that. Right? That's a witness to the world. And then finally, um, lines 27, 28, the very end of the covenant. Notice, it says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit enable us to fulfill these promises. Why? It's to the glory of God and the good of his people. It's the Lord upon whom we depend to even enable us to do this covenant. Did you notice, from the very beginning to the very end, we recognize it is God's act of mercy and grace, and it's going to be God through his Spirit enabling us to just do this thing? You and I cannot do this. I need to be reminded that I need to press into the Spirit of God. I need to be asking for the Spirit of God to work with me and work in my life. Luke eleven thirteen, the Lord says, Look, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how about the Heavenly Father? How much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? When I was a young Christian, in my mind, I would interpret that to mean, God's going to give me the stuff I want. But it's a, the text says it. No, God says, I'll give you my Spirit. Lean in. Lord, I need your Spirit to make this work. Friends, putting together a church covenant like this, I know just sounds so weird because A, it's countercultural to our current church culture. What church has church covenants anymore? B, it, it challenges our, our consumer mentality about the church. For the last 30 years, the church has been on a church growth marketing scheme as a purveyor of goods and services for your benefit. And so I don't blame you if you thought that, hey, there's a bait and switch at this church. No, it's not. We've just done the wrong thing to you and told you the church is all about providing your needs and goods and fed a consumer mentality when it doesn't. And I think people also think it's weird because they go, wait a minute, the, the Bible doesn't talk about our lives together in a church when in fact it does. You've seen some of that. And we do well to think about this. Look at this quote here. I'm reading this book, Don't Fire Your Church Members. To claim interest in Christian fellowship or even the church while paying little heed to church structure is like claiming to love family while paying no heed to the difference between parent and child or husband and wife. Part of what makes a family are those roles. An important part of a church are its various roles or offices. Friends, part of the reason I think also a, a church covenant is hard is because the, the enemy, I wrote my notes down this morning, I just thought of this idea this morning at like 6 a.m., what did I say? The enemy of community, oh, 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 the enemy of community is not individualism. And, and I thought that's an important thing because I have posited the two, and I want to be clear that the enemy of community is not individualism. The enemy of community is anti-authoritarianism. Let me put it this way, maybe. Individualism, yeah, this is better, sorry. Individualism is not rooted in anti-community. Right, so unless you're like an extreme hermit, the individualism doesn't come because you don't like community. All of us appreciate community. You like community. The, the individualism, the problem with it, the kind of problematic individualism is rooted in anti-authority. I want to have community with you as long as you don't tell me anything about how I should live my life. So that's a really important distinction that this, this individualism that's taking over our culture, it's not rooted in anti-community. 
It's actually rooted in anti-authority, and as a Christian, whoa, that's problematic because it was an anti-authoritarian attitude that got us in the problem of sin in the first place. Oh, you don't tell me which tree I can eat from. I eat from any tree. You're not the boss of me. I'll eat from this tree. Anti-authority. Friends, here's a little brief example of all that the Bible says about how we order our lives together as a church. We won't get into it, but just I want you to see it. The Bible talks about have, how we have meetings together regularly. The Bible even talks about how we process elections. The Bible talks about the officers of the church. The Bible instructs us on a, how do we exercise church discipline. The Bible talks about actual contributions, when we should take them up, and all those kinds of things. The Bible talks about letters of commendation and recommendation, the practice of the ordinances, qualifications of membership, and on and on and on the bible talks about a lot of these things about which people say the bible says very little bit about how the church should be structured but actually when you start reading it you realize wow it's all over the place it's all over the place because the bible's telling a story of people's lives together it's not saying here's the letter so you know how to structure your church because none of you would read that letter right but you read through all these letters of people's lives and you start seeing, oh my goodness, God has a plan for his people together and there it is. Okay, so that's the summary of the series. That's our church covenant. Our remaining time as ambassadors and an embassy doing life together through discipline or discipleship and discipline. Point I'm getting at here again is that the Bible, it, our lives together are not a free-for-all. There's quite a lot the Bible says of how we live life together as a church. At this point, I wanted to address two things, the, the discipleship and the discipline. But I realized when I was studying for this that time is against me. And so also because in Jan January of 2019, we did a five-week series all just on discipleship. Who, what is a disciple? Who should be making the disciples? Where disciples are made? How they are made? We, we talked about five weeks on just discipleship. I thought, if you want to study discipleship, you can go to our website. Uh, the, the office does a great job. You can just type in the search box, discipleship, and all that whole series will come up. So in order to serve you well, what I did want to talk about is, which is equally important, our lives together in church discipline, right? I know you're just excited to hear this message, right? And the problem with church discipline, I wonder if we raise, if I had you raise your hand, I'm not going to do that, but how many of you actually even heard a sermon on church discipline or even part of a sermon on church discipline? I'm not sure that we'd get very many hands. And the challenge is because when we think of church discipline, what, what, what's conjured in our minds is, is angry images of angry people, veins bulging out, hurt feelings, raw emotions, that kind of a thing. And friends, that can happen. It, it, it does happen. And, and in my experience, that typically happens when people are doubling down in their sin or they're holding on to whatever it is that they shouldn't be holding on to. But two weeks ago, Jesus did a, a discipleship conference, and one of the segments was on church discipline. So he asked me to talk a little bit about that after we watched the presentation. And I didn't think about it until you had me to talk about it, is that I have been lucky as a Christian, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, that when I became a believer, that I was a part of a church and in a friend group that challenged sin, practiced church discipline, and, and because of those things made me and so many others more like Jesus. The first time in particular, walking into this church that, that welcomed me and my friends with open arms, we had become believers and couldn't find a church for a whole year because we didn't fit the mold, long hair, tattooed, earrings, piercings, the whole bit, but this church brought us in. 
And within the first month, I remember attending a service, and there was a public discipline of my friend, a friend who, who at the time wasn't a friend, later became a really good friend and a, and a pastor with a vibrant ministry here in Huntington Beach. But at the time, he was undergoing church discipline, and I remember him standing at the front, and I remember the pastor explaining the situation, and, and my friend was weeping in repentance. The congregation was weeping, weeping in, because of what had happened, but of his, his repentance, the pastor was weeping. And I remember thinking, whoa, what the heck? You know, I had never seen this. And I remember as a young Christian, my friends, you know, not having a church background. And I remember reading the book of James about James saying, hey, from the fount should not come sweet water and bitter water. And one of my friends, I don't know if it was Uncle, uh, Uncle Frank or, or Asa or, or Byron or, or Louie, looked up and said, oh, guys, we, that, that means we probably shouldn't talk. I come from Hawaii, so I'm going to go into a little pigeon here. We, we, we cannot talk stink about people, huh? <laughs> right? which, which means don't gossip about people. And we look, it says, yeah, but I bet... I bet you that means we cannot, we, we, cannot keep, we cannot cuss and, you know, we say F this, F that. Bro, this, what the Bible's saying is we're wrong. We got to change. And I remember the conversation. It was like, bro, what else does the Bible say that we do wrong? <laughs> <laughs> bro, plenty. We do plenty wrong, bro. We got to change. Being in a culture where it was like, hey, it's not just knowledge. The Bible says this, you're wrong, be different. I was so grateful for that. I didn't realize it was church discipline or formal structure, but then being in this church, watching it happen at a church and realizing, hey, this is good. Excuse me, let me get back into proper English. This is good. This is what it's supposed to be, especially for young Christians that have no idea. So what I want to do is I want to close my time and read, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 897. There's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, um, sections in the Bible about church discipline where we don't have time to look at them all. So I just want to look at five things we learn about church discipline from 1 Corinthians 5 that make, make it easier for you to remember. And then I want to close. It overlaps a little bit, but I want to close encouraging you that church discipline is good. I want to give you five reasons to love church discipline because, friends, it is an act of love. So let's look at it. Let me just read it, and we'll unpack it. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as, if, and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name, ecclesia, the church, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven, that you might be a new lump, as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Wow. Let's look at that. Number one, discipline aims to present a good witness for Jesus. Did you see that in verse one? Paul's passion here. Church, friends, church discipline, church discipline is good for non-Christians because it helps him clearly see the demarcation between actual Christianity and moralistic religiosity. And if you did not grow up in a Christian community, you need that. Because if all you see are hypocritical Christians and you come to a point that you know you need something and you look at the church and they're just like you, which was my experience for most of my life, you're not helping them. And so by exercising church discipline, you are saying to the world, this is what actual Christianity is. Because if not, we're just moralistic religiosity. And by the way, people, friends, I think most people reject not Christianity, not the gospel. I think what most people are rejecting is religiosity. Because when you get the gospel, what in the world? Why would you not be all in? But I think what people see is religiosity, and church discipline helps to wean that. By the way, isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? You are a light on a hill. Let that light shine. You're salt of the earth. But if you lose your saltiness, what good are you? Right? So church discipline helps the world, right? So it, it, it's, uh, what's the first point I said here? It presents a good witness for Christ. Number two, discipline aims to expose, right? You see that in verse two. He says, hey, remove the one among you. So you got to identify who this person is. Sin is like mold, and it grows in the cold and the dark. And when you bring church discipline, you bring the light of what's going on to it. Brother, you are, sister, you are exposing that. And like mold, it cannot grow. So church discipline exposes, aims to expose. Another thing, church discipline aims to warn. Verse 5. Now, I recognize that that verse 5 section can be confusing. Give him up to Satan so he might be saved. I'm not going to unpack that right now. But I, I want to be clear on what church discipline is and isn't. A church cannot remove someone's salvation. When we discipline someone, we're not saying, oh, you are not a Christian. We're removing salvation from you. We cannot do that. We don't know a person's heart. But by the same token, as I was writing a letter to somebody we recently disciplined, I says, brother, I love you. We love you. We want you back. And I want to be clear that we're not saying you're not a Christian because we don't know your heart. But don't be so fooled to think you do. Because the Bible's clear that none of us know our hearts. That's part of why a church is so helpful. I don't have to trust my own subjective feelings, whether I'm feeling good about my faith or bad about my faith. I can trust brothers and sisters to say, you're there. I see the fruit. You're discouraged, but you're not. You're there. You're bearing fruit for Christ. Don't trust your own heart. What we are saying is we are enacting that if you continue to live on this, day, this path, 
that we are removing you from the people of God because that is what your actions show us the way you're living. And one day, if you continue, you will be permanently removed from the people of God. And this is just a foretaste warning of what can happen. Please come back. It is to warn that person that their actions are removing them from God's presence. Church discipline also aims to save. Friends, when simple warnings are not heeded and the individual continues in their rebellion or their apathy, this is a severe, uh, a device of last resort to let them know you've, you've been put out. And according to 1 Corinthians 5, brother, I, I, I was having a meal with somebody that we recently disciplined, another person, and I love him. I said, I, I keep calling him brother. I said, I got to stop calling you brother because I don't know. I don't know if you're a brother, but we love you and we're warning you to come back. We want you to be saved. Discipline aims to do that. And then finally, discipline aims to protect. Look at verse 6. Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If in case you're not a baker, leaven kind of spreads through the yeast. You just need a little bit and it goes to the whole, a whole whatever bread that is. Like cancer Sin spreads, and if we don't discipline it, it'll spread. Let me give you a quick illustration of that. Have you ever had an opportunity, you're sitting around standing talking, and someone comes up and starts complaining about someone else, starts grumbling? What's your first comment usually? You don't say, brother, the scripture says not to think of people that way. No, you're like, yeah, and he did this to me too, and blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, somebody else comes in, and you're grumbling and complaining. Sin spreads, right? I think godliness does too, and that's what church discipline helps us with. Now, I want to give you five reasons to love church discipline. But before I do that, I also want to tell you a story. Uh, we have time. Um, it's not always bad, as a matter of fact. A lot of times it's good. You don't know it because it never came to the point publicly. But for those of you who knew, uh, um, I didn't ask him to share this story. He wants us to share that. He wants the story to be shared. But let's say his name is Roger. Roger came to our church under discipline abused his family for nine years and by abuse i mean marital affairs spent money just drove his family into the ground for nine years his wife put up with it it all blew up uh, an affair with a prostitute brought it to light while he was traveling overseas he came to our church under discipline from his church it was too volatile for the family to stay together so we brought him in under the discipline of our elders and for two years, the people of this church loved him and his wife and his two kids. You probably sat next to him in worship while he was being broken over and over again because of his sin. For two years, this church loved him, challenged him, got in his grill. I don't think we ever punched him in the throat. But we were in his face to be different. And just a couple months ago, when we actually disciplined someone else, I walked out. Most of you were gone after the Lord's Supper service. I sat on one of these uh, benches out here. And Roger came up and says, hey, this, it's God's been doing amazing things. Long story short, me and, um, let's say her name's Joy, it's good. We finally come over it. We're moving, to, we're moving out of state to be with family. We've got to start over. And friends, some of you know that story. There's so much more to it. There's so much more to it. And God made it a change in the last six months. It was a beautiful thing. But he just says, I want to say thank you. And I wish I could say thank this whole entire church. His wife wasn't there because she was busy packing, and this church did that. Many of you didn't even know. But it was discipline that got him there, and discipline that, that saved him and his family. 
So let me give you five reasons you should love church discipline. And they, they kind of overlap with what Paul says. Because you love the gospel and you want to preserve its clarity. Because you have been saved by the gospel and you know that there are other people that are dying in this world and they need a gospel pure church to look at and says, they have life, I need that. They don't need to look at a church of nominal Christians who are living like hell. They need Christians who say, I don't want my sin, I want Jesus. Love church discipline because you love the gospel and you want to preserve its clarity and life-saving message. Secondly, love church discipline because you love the person and you want to save them from their sin. If you try or if we try to exercise any discipline for any reason less than because we love the individual, it's going to go sideways. It will go sideways. You do it because you love them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just an amazing pastor theologian of, of, the, of the German church in the 1930s and 40s who stood up against Adolf Hitler in the Third Reich. He was finally executed in Flossenburg concentration camp, said this while he was in a concentration camp, longing to be with the church and couldn't. He wrote this in his book, Life Together. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Let me read that again. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns someone to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the rebuke that calls a brother or sister back from the path of sin. It is a ministry of mercy, an ultimate offer of genuine fellowship when we allow nothing but God's word to stand between us judging and succoring, then it is not we who are judging. God alone judges. And God's judgment is helpful and healing. Ultimately, we have no charge but to serve our brother, never to set ourselves above him. And we serve him even when we must speak the judging and dividing word of God to him. Love church discipline because you love that person. Third reason, because you love the church and you want to maintain her witness. That's what I said. So there's some overlap here. Here's one. Love church discipline because you love the world and you want them to know that Jesus actually changes lives. If you know what it's like, if you can remember your conversion, you'll know what I'm talking about that Jesus actually can change you. And if we let churches become nominal and people just do whatever they want and we don't live lives of holiness, we're going to have to answer for all the people in the world who never saw the changing power of the gospel. Sorry. Actually, no, I'm not. It breaks my heart, but it's true. Okay, last reason. Love church discipline because you love Jesus Christ and you want to be like him. You want to love what he loves, and he loves his people. He loves the world, and he loves the holiness that leads to everlasting joy, pleasure, and life. That's why we love church discipline, for those five reasons. If you are a Christian, 
Friends, we are the people who speak and represent Jesus to this world. And it matters how we live. Not just as individuals, but as a church. And that is exactly why, by the way, God has given to us this wonderful thing called the church. To encourage us, to disciple us, and to discipline us if necessary. Because what is at stake is nothing less than his name, his glory, and his plan to redeem the world. And his plan is you and I. That's his grand plan. As scary as that is, that's his plan. There's no greater privilege and no greater responsibility that people can have. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and... Lord, I just feel like there's just so much more about being a Christian, being a church that, that I don't know. I feel like this series has helped me start wrapping my head around things more and more, and I just marvel at what your plan is. Lord, I'm so grateful that I am in a church that loves the gospel. These people want more of you in their lives, so I know while it may hit heavy, it's hitting hearts that want to be like Jesus. Father, would you help us as a church, not just Christ Community Church, but as a church, repent from our idolatrous pursuit of larger buildings and bigger programs and fancier this and relevance to the world at the abdication of our gospel witness. Would you make us sick and tired of the world because it's easy to forget that the world is bankrupt because there's so many things about it of shadow glory that entice us and lure us away. Help us to see the beauty of Christ revealed in the gospel and his people. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.